1: You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. I'm here in the studio of Gangland Wire. I have on the line Ray Morrow, a retired FBI agent. I first heard Ray on another podcast. There's a lady named... uh, Jerry Williams, a retired FBI agent that has a podcast. Uh, God, all of a sudden I forgot the name of his FBI file. Just you know, if you want to search for it, I'll have a link to it on my uh, show notes. And just.
0: Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call. Working together to keep our country and community safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.
1: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about
0: anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that
1: case, I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Google Jerry, J-E-R-I, Williams, and FBI and podcast. You'll find it. She's got a couple of books she's written, and, and she's got a whole bunch of retired FBI agents on the on her podcast. I was on there. She won't really have cops on there. She'll only have agents, but got my friend Bill Owsley from here in Kansas City. He and I went on and talked about the skimming investigation that we were involved in. So, Ray, welcome.
2: Thank you, Gary. Really a pleasure for you to have me. I really thank you for giving me this opportunity.
1: Well, Ray, now you were with the FBI how long? 21 years. And where did you start out? Actually, let's go back a little bit before that. How did you first get interested in becoming an FBI agent?
2: That's a good story, and it goes all the way back to my childhood from early '60s when the FBI program with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. came on. I just got really, really enthralled with the FBI and Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. and that whole show, and I never missed an episode. and And it, that led me to look more into the FBI. And this is, you know, I'm nine, ten, eleven years old at the time, and I really was amazed by J. Edgar Hoover. Everything I could read about J. Edgar Hoover and any time he was on TV, I made sure I watched and paid attention to what he had to say. And it was funny because as I started to continue to go through junior high and high school, my plan was to become an agent. My father's plan was for me to become a pharmacist. And so there was constant back and forth with my father not telling me I'm not going to be, I'm not going to the FBI, I'm going to be a pharmacist. It's a great, great job. It's you know. And finally, I just one day walked out to him and, said, and gave him all the reasons why I should be an FBI agent and all the reasons why I shouldn't be pharmacist. And the first one started with my grades in, in science and chemistry were not very good. <laughs> and at that point, he just looked at me and says, well, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And that was it. And so from that point forward, it was all law enforcement. I went to Penn State University and graduated with law enforcement corrections degree and right out of college, I went to the FBI as a clerk. Moved to Washington, D.C., making about uh, less than $6,000 a year. And spent the year there trained to be a fingerprint examiner. And I found that that's a very boring job and very tedious. And uh, I figured I better find something else because my thought was, well, once they see me, they'll make me an agent right away. Well, and that, you know, that doesn't happen that way. So then I went, I applied and was hired by the uh, U.S. Secret Service Uniform Division. So for two years, I worked at the White House protecting uh, Jimmy Carter and the first family in the White House. That was just a fantastic opportunity for someone like me from a small town outside of Pittsburgh being able to be at the White House and, and you know, protect the president and his family it was just quite an honor. And at that point, though, my father had passed away very young age of 51, and kind of wanted to get back to Pittsburgh. So I applied for a couple of jobs and got hired by a company called Allegheny International to protect the president of the corporation. And so I did that for seven years. And at that point, the president that I was protecting had retired, and I was getting ready to move on. So I said, you know what, now's the time to apply for uh, FBI being agent. And I did in the 1987, February 1987, I was hired and went
1: to Quantico. Wow. You were focused, laser focused from an early
2: age. Well, I was. And I think the reason was I knew I didn't have very many other abilities or capabilities. I I knew if if I didn't do this, I wasn't going to be very successful in my life. But I was. I mean, for some reason, I just wanted to be an FBI agent. I wanted to be in law enforcement. And, you know, I just that's the path I went. And fortunately, I, I was able to get these positions and move on. And that's. It's been like for me, it's been a dream come true. What I was able to do and and what I've done. So, really. So,
1: what was your uh, your first office out of the academy?
2: My first office was Louisville, Kentucky, and that was for me a great opportunity. I was on, was able to work, uh, get on the uh, SWAT team, so I was able to do that right away, which is nice because when you go to a small to medium sized field office. You get those opportunities. I was able to work drugs and the uh, violations of bank robberies and things like that. So I was on a squad that we, we were able to do a lot of different things. And I think that that office allowed me to really grow as an agent immediately because you were given responsibilities. I had a great training agent by the name of Walt Jones who took me under his wing and really taught me a lot. And I really, I don't think I could have handpicked a better field office than the Louisville office. Uh, the, the management was great. And again, they gave these first office agents an opportunity to spread your wings and do as much as you wanted to do. So I was very thankful for that. I got uh, to the Louisville office in May of 1987.
1: So so that's kind of when they first started getting into working drug cases. I, uh, they yes. didn't Absolutely right. did not work drug cases earlier on before that, but that was after the crack cocaine epidemic and that became such a huge problem in the cities that they opened that up to FBI agents.
2: A very defined path that we had to take because obviously DEA we, we didn't want to intrude on what DEA was doing so ours was very specific as you know what we were going to address as far as drugs and more organized groups type of thing and actually I got assigned to a task force shortly after getting there that addressed marijuana and uh, Kentucky was one of the few states known for some of the best marijuana in, in the world and there's a little county down in it's called Marion County Kentucky they were well known for their marijuana and the FBI uh, along with several other agencies in Louisville formed a task force to go after this group so that's really what I worked for the, the majority of my time while I was in Louisville and that was good too because it allowed me to really interact with other agencies and understand what it takes to cooperate because you know, a lot of times there's a lot of infighting and territorial matters. But uh, it was nice to learn at a young young age in the career how to get along with other agencies, and what it takes to be successful in a joint operation.
1: Yeah, I, I know. Like you don't know Louisville or that like that county. I, I've read about that marijuana thing. There a book on that. And I, there's a tricky little yeah. name to that. Well, I can't remember the name of cornbread mafia and they were huge marijuana growers and and purveyors but you come in you don't know the lay of the land you don't know anybody but other fbi agents but the local guys many times they've grown up there they've got already got contacts or some you know know kind of know who's who and And or can reach out to find a contact just to maybe just to find out something about different businesses and who owns them and, you know, who's right and who's wrong. And they really work together well. We did a lot of task force in here in Kansas City, and I worked a lot of with a lot of FBI agents. And that's, you know, with the Organized Crime Squad, the first thing they do is send a new agent over to the intelligence unit and a couple of guys that take him and just drive him around and, you know, show him the lay of the land. So,
2: well, the funny story as to how I got signed to that was I got called into my, actually the assistant special agent in charge was our squad supervisor of such a small office. But he calls me in and I'm, I've been in the office about three months and he tells me what a great job I'm doing and he's very, very impressed with what I've done and and he's, giving, he's going to present me with this great opportunity and he tells me I'm going to be on this task force and he says, uh, Walt, uh, your contact agent is going to take you down. There's a meeting today and it's going to kick off. This operation, you're the agent that we select to do this. So I'm like, wow, they really saw how great I am. You know, this I could barely get out of the office with my head was so big. But with, with all the things he said, so we get in the car and we're driving down, and Walt again, my contact agent says, or my training agent says, you know why you got picked for this? I go, yeah, yeah. I said, uh, Walt told me, or Marty told me about, uh, you know, all the great things, how good I did, and and he just looked at me and goes, no, not really. He said uh, about a year ago. The DEA had a case, and they were working with the Kentucky State Police. And we came in and took, basically stole the case from them. And he said, they haven't talked to us since, and uh, they, they refused to work with us. But our headquarters is saying that we have to be a part of this task force. So Marty and I thought that you're new. They can't hate you that much. <laughs> and so now <laughs> we get to the meeting, and we get, and we walk in, and I'm like, oh, my God. These people hate us. And so we walked into the room, and if looks could kill Walt and I would have been dead. I mean, you could just feel the tension as soon as we walked in the room. And uh, they're sitting like a half circle, and David Grice, who was the Assistant United States Attorney, was standing in front of everybody. And there's two seats at the end of the thing. Walt sits down, and I sit down at the end, and I'm going, Oh my God. You could just see that they did not want us there. You could just feel it. So David Grice introduces himself, talks about what we're going to do. He said, well, Why don't we go around the room, everybody introduce yourselves, tell us, you know, what office you're with. And so they start at the far end, and they get around the wall, and Uh, Walt Jones stands up. Now everybody knows Walt. And he says, I'm Walt Jones. I'm with the FBI. And if you play ball with us, we'll shove the bat right up your ass. (laughs) I just looked at him. I go, and there was some silence. And then everyone started to laugh. And I I realized what Walt did is look, we're sorry. We know, we we know what we did. We're going to give you this kid here. And, you know, we're going to make nice. It really turned out to be a fantastic operation. And we really got along very, very well. But it was a, (laughs) it was a rude awakening for me. I had no idea what it was like until I walked in that room and and just felt the (laughs) tension. But again, uh, some of those guys are still uh, some of my best friends.
1: Yeah. Well, you know what we used to say, uh, you know, the agent comes in and says, hi, I'm the FBI and I'm here to help you. Like, yeah, Yeah, sure. (laughs) You're here to steal the case. (laughs) Get the
2: credit. That's exactly right.
1: (laughs) Well, that's a pretty common thing everywhere you go. I worked a case with a, ATF agent. I don't even know. He was just aggressive young agent, and I had a little something going on a a mob run escort service. And he and I worked it and worked it and and worked with the U.S. attorney and finally got enough. And they indicted the owner. And then FBI agent was sent in because it was really an FBI violation, and the ATF couldn't actually prosecute this interstate transportation for prostitution, <laughs> so an ATF agent, he was mad, but he also knew that, you know, we'd had fun, and what they think, his bosses weren't going to let him do it, and the U.S. Attorney wasn't going to let him be the case agent and right. in the end, we went to trial.
2: And you see it all the time on TV, Ali, when the FBI comes in, you know, everybody knows what they're there for, to steal the case, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. like I said, Walt, uh, Walt uh, just put it right out there and let them know that, hey, yeah. we know what we did yeah we're sorry that was pretty this guy's gonna work with so it like it worked out really well very successful case and still friends with with several of those guys that i worked with cool so uh, you ended up going up to cleveland
1: ohio which was the main thing we want to talk about this is a heck of a story folks i'm telling you i heard him telling this story on that other podcast and i thought right then i need to find him get him on and then i kind of got busy and i forgot about it i happened to To notice his book somewhere on the internet, I can't remember how I found out about it again, but I saw that he had a book out, and and then I remembered, oh yeah, I want him to tell this story and and help you promote that book. What's the name of your book, Ray?
2: The name of the book is Broken Shield, An FBI Undercover Agent's Personal Perspective.
1: Uh, Interesting. So you got transferred to Cleveland. Was that like your offensive preference? Did you want to go to Cleveland, or was that they brought you in to work undercover?
2: Yeah, I tell you, it was really twofold. One, shortly after I got to the Louisville office, one of my um, squad mates, a guy by the name of Tom Nunnemaker, had just finished reading a book called Donnie Brasco, and uh, gave it to me. He said, you need to read this book. It's a great book. And uh, I'm sure, you know, the movie, Donnie Brasco and Joe Pistone, his story has been all over. And so I read the book, and honest to goodness, I was just enthralled with what Joe had done and... Uh, I just thought, man, this is the strongest man I've ever, emotionally, physically, mentally, what he went through, what what he did, what he accomplished, just amazing. And I had never thought about doing undercover. I never was in law enforcement before I got to the FBI. I never did law undercover before I got to the FBI. But I thought, man, I would love to try this undercover stuff. I mean, that is, it's one you, you against them. So the second part of me wanting to go and do this undercover in Cleveland was the FBI at that time had all first office agents that went to small or medium offices, which is what Louisville was, would, after three years, be sent to a large field office, so one of our metropolitan field offices. And we had 12 of those. And one of those, uh, they were like New York, L.A., Chicago, Miami. And every one of the first office agents in in the Louisville division that got there before me were. Every time they get their orders, it would be to New York, and they would come back with these horror stories about where they had to live, how much it was costing to to live there, and the the commute that they were going to have. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I don't want to go to New York. I know my wife doesn't want to go to New York, so I'm, I'm trying to think, how can I get out of this? Well, one of the agents in Kentucky... A gentleman by the name of Dan Estrom was in the Elizabethtown RA, and Dan had a great reputation, built a reputation as a great investigator, uh, especially in corruption cases. And Cleveland happened to be looking for an agent like that. And Cleveland happened to be one of these major 12 field offices. How Cleveland got into that, I don't know, because they're really a small office, uh, or at least a medium sized office. But anyway, Dan got transferred to uh, Cleveland. And about a year after Dan got there, this Tom Nunnemaker, who gave me the book about Joe Pastone, gets a call from Dan wanting to know if he if he wanted to do this undercover operation, that Dan was getting started a police corruption case in, in Cleveland. And Tom didn't want to go to Cleveland, but he knew I did. So he said, hey, you might want to give Dan Esther a call and see. And I'm thinking, man, I don't, I don't, even, I don't have any. Tom was a certified as an undercover agent. I had no experience. He said, give him a call. So I called Dan, and he remembered me, and I, I just said, Dan, I'd be interested. And that undercover operation that you have. And I said, you know, I, I was up front. I said, I don't have any experience in undercover. I said, but it's something I really like to do. And he said, well, let, let me think about it and I'll get back to you. So they he thought about it. And I get a call. He said, well, why don't you move to Cleveland? We're going to interview you. So I went up for the interview and uh, it was a whole day of meeting with Dan, and the, and the special agent in charge, and some of the other people in the office that were going to be involved in the case. And at the end of the day, Dan and the SAC called me into the office and said, you're our guy. And you know, I, so, so I, I asked Dan afterwards, after especially when your charges left, I said, you know, why me? He goes, well, I said, to be honest with you, I didn't want any of these guys that have experience in undercover because they come in with their own agenda. They come in with how they're going to do this and how they're going to do that. This is my case. I want someone fresh. I want someone that that I know is going to do what I, what I want them to do. And I said, so you're looking for someone with no experience? He goes, yeah. I go, well, you got your guy. I mean, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. Now, the case was targeted to Cleveland Police Department, and it was, they were protecting, at the time, illegal casinos. And so I was going to have to, at some point, open up an illegal casino and and get these police officers to protect that. The second strike was, I, I didn't gamble. I didn't know anything about gambling. I didn't. I never played poker. I, I didn't know anything. So when Dan told me that, I said, well, Dan, I, I don't know anything about gambling. He said, don't worry about it. He I'm going to send you down to Quantico for about a week. He said, we're going to get a bunch of the agents, undercover agents that are experts in gambling. They're going to work with you. I said, okay, all right. So I went home, and at that point, my wife had no idea I was doing this. And I broke to her that this is what was going to happen, and this is what I was going to do. And after I explained it to her, I'm thinking, what the hell did I get myself into? I, I have no undercover experience. I know nothing about gambling, and and the subject to be Cleveland police officers. Uh, who else knows more about what an undercover operation looks like than police officers? I may have bit off more than I can chew, but I, you know, I committed to it. And Dan took a chance. I, I'm saying Dan took a chance on me. I'm I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do this. So I did. I went down to Quantico before I got started on the operation and spent a week with some of the best. I had to offer at the time, uh, Herm Groman, Ed Keller, Pete Christ, uh, so, some of the best. And I spent a week with them and we worked, at, you know, card games, craps, every green game that, that they thought I, I'd be having to run at the casino, we went over and over. I acted as a player, I acted as a dealer, and Pete Christ, at the end of the week, knew that I still didn't get it. Now we would do these scenarios all day and then i go back and watch tapes in my room and and go over everything that I learned that day, and he'd come back the next day and see. And it, literally, uh, a week of this. At the end, Pete Chris, we had just broken up for, for the week, and Pete called me over. and says, uh, "I know you probably st- looks like you still don't have this." So he he made he made me a cheat sheet of, you know, how to pay off game bets and how to, you know, what, like, three of a kind beats whatever. And he has this whole cheat sheet for me. He says I think you're going to need this. <laughs> and so I took it, I go, yeah, Pete, I will. And so I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, I'm going to run a casino and I really don't know how to do this stuff. But uh, anyway, I kept working at it. That's basically the background that I went with when I got to Cleveland. And I started working. Dan introduced me when I got up uh, to Cleveland, he introduced me to confidential informant. and. I just didn't trust this guy from the beginning. I didn't trust him. And I caught this guy in a couple of lies and finally we got rid of him and, I, you know, basically was Dan would bring in a couple of other confidential informants who didn't know who I was. They thought I was literally a, a bad guy that Dan was investigating and, uh, we, we, you know, I started for the first six months, it was nothing but Going to these bars where these police officers hung out, and you know, trying to get them to you know get to know me. And time during the day, I would run. Dan uh, had the idea of a uh, silk screening business, so I would make T-shirts, jackets, hats for these bars, and and then sell them. You know, uh, you know, get contracts and sell them. That was my background. That's what I was doing. And it finally took about six months. And literally, the first thing I started to do was run a high stakes poker game. And Dan had some informants that uh, would send these gamblers in and, and we'd run a, I'd run a high stakes poker game but I could not get any police to come I mean it was and I was working literally I'd work in the, in the uh, shop and, and throughout the day visit these bars then at night go back out to these bars and and just try to get conversations with police officers and see you know and I, I but I just wasn't getting anywhere just nothing was happening they, they were all friendly to me everything uh everybody liked me and it was at one point it was like I don't know if you remember the show Cheers the tv show when one would walk in and everybody say, Norm! You know, that, they were doing that to, when I walk into a bar, you know, Ray, how are you, how you doing? After about the, it was almost going on six months, and we were getting ready to re-up for another, because these things would go, you have to get approval for six months, and then prior to the next six months, you had to tell, you know, basically rewrite another proposal and, and see if they would approve for the second one. Getting to the point, right, Dan was writing the proposal for the second six months, and we had just had another Friday night, another poker game, and, and I kept losing. I mean, uh, these guys were killing me but it just got to the point where after one night i called dan down yeah basically uh we played at my i had another t-shirt shop and then the it was like a a little shopping plaza and basically stores just connected to one another and i had the second one but that's where i ran the casino the uh, poker games and uh, dan was upstairs on the third floor of this building monitoring everything everything was recorded and so at the end of the night it's like now Saturday morning, I called Dan down after everybody had left. And I stepped on and said, Dan, you're going to have to find somebody else. I can't do this. I said, I've been working, you know, nonstop, seven days a week. 18, 19 hours a day. And I said, hey, we're, You're getting ready to re up this thing, and I got no no police officer. We got nothing but a high stakes poker game going. Maybe you need somebody that has, that has experience, that understands it, maybe more believable than I am. And, and, it, and it hurt me to say that because I didn't want to quit on Dan because he took a chance on me. But it, it was to the point where we're not getting anywhere. This is not Nothing's happening. And Dan said, Look, he basically said, You know, you've done more than we ever thought and gotten further than we ever thought we would and he said if you want to opt out and get out he said that's up to you but if you do i'm shutting this down because i can't bring anybody else in that would be able to do what you've done and he continued to talk and, and at the end i just said okay look i'll stay let's let's do this and the following week uh the main officer a gentleman by the name of bud who i'd been working and in, in going to his bar constantly finally came down and said uh let me see what you got. And so, I, you know, we talked about the casino. He said, where's it going to be? So I, I took him next door and I showed him, told him, I said, this is where, this is where we have it. And he said, what are you going to have? I said, well, we're going to have a crafts table, we're going to have blackjack table, poker table, some slot machines. So he, he went through the whole process of what, you know, what he could offer me and what he would do. And that was how many officers and the fact that he would tell me how much I'd have to pay each officer. And he laid it all out. And fortunately, I was able to record everything that he said. And after he left, it was like a huge weight off my shoulder, like finally. And so I called Dan, and, and uh, we went back to my undercover apartment, and I played the tape for him. And from that point forward, it was, you know, for a year and a half, running casinos every Friday night, and with police protection. And it was at one point we got notified by these police officers that our our location uh, we had moved it from the. The little shop that we had to this warehouse on the other side of town because the crowd got so big. And Dan had basically we set up this basically a warehouse where the cars, the players would pull into the garage in the back, park their cars in the garage, and then up front of this warehouse is where the gaming was. We got a call from I got a call from Bud that night. We were getting ready to go. He said you need to meet me at the Holiday Inn. I said Bud, we're getting ready to go. He said you need to meet me at the Holiday Inn. Don't go to the warehouse. So I met Bud, and he tells me that. The internal affairs of sitting outside waiting for us to show up. And, you know, so uh, it was kind of like, wow, you know, had gone there and, and, not met with Bud, I would have been arrested. The whole thing would have been taken down by the Cleveland's Internal Affairs. So at that point, we shut it down and waited a couple of weeks, several weeks. In fact, we tried to run it at a hotel. We, you know, we tried to keep the cops involved. And so I found the location at a hotel, and we tried to run it out of there, but it just didn't work out right. Logistics were just too hard. So we finally, at some uh, went back to uh, back to the warehouse. But uh, I'd broken away from Bud's group and. Uh, found another group of cops, we ended up 30 Cleveland police officers all together. And with this new group, with Bud's group, I didn't trust enough. We, Dan and I wanted to do a drug run to see if they would protect drugs. Bud's group, uh, there, there was no way. I just didn't. Those guys were just—they were uncontrollable. At some point, and, and there were times where, you know, I really feared that they were going to rob me casino. So when we broke away from them, we got with this new group of cops, and we basically really trusted these guys. And so we, we ran basically truckloads of marijuana, and we would uh, have two trucks pull into the warehouse. One would be coming from like up north, and the other one coming from, from uh, Kentucky. And we'd have the police take the truck and escort it out of the city. So that they wouldn't get arrested while while they did the transfer, and we did that several times as well. So it got really involved and really heated with what we were doing, and a lot of a lot of tension back at headquarters of us running these drugs and trying to coordinate that with DEA. In fact, that we had done a couple of these, and we're getting ready to do a third one, and I'm at the warehouse, and Dan Estrom called me the case and He said, you can't do this. And He says you're going to have to put it off. And I go what What's the problem? He <laughs> says well. BEA found out about it and FBI now says we have to get their approval before we do this. I said, Dan, they're about 10 minutes away and the trucks are on on their way. He said, Well, you got to wait. He said, You're going to have to um, wait until I call you back. I said, Well, I'll tell you, here's what I'm going to do. You can call, but I'm not answering the phone. I said, I'll take full responsibility for this. I said, I'm not going to break this off. I said, you know, it's, the DEA has nothing to do with it. And so we went ahead and did it. And I'm thinking, man, I hope this <laughs> I hope this is okay. But just to feel right like at that point saying, no, we're not going to do this and not have a really valid excuse not to do it. So we went ahead and did it. And after it was all over and everybody was, I paid the officers <laughs> and got, got that all squared away. I got the call from Dan. He said, the DEA says it's okay. I go, that's great, Dan. Hey, I got a couple of
1: questions it. here before we get too far on down in the road on this. Now, when you started that big casino, did you bring other FBI agents in to act as dealers and, and help you with this? Or did you, you had to have some personnel or did you just hire people that, that you'd gotten to know in the uh, gambling business?
2: Yeah. Initially, what we did was, one, the, the one thing we had to do, we had to have, uh, they, we wanted to have uh, undercover agents in there for my protection, but also due to a, a surveillance law that uh, with regards to recordings in Ohio, you can't record, like if, uh, several of the bad guys went off into part of the, uh, into a corner and started talking, we couldn't record that unless we had someone in the vicinity, right. an undercover agent in the vicinity. So that was the first thing. We, we filled them. We bring undercover agents to act as gamblers. And then the first, I don't know, three or four weeks that we ran this, myself and about three other undercover agents worked as the dealers, you know, and,
0: More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell.
1: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play
2: for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For blackjack. Yeah. But I'm telling you, we were not good as good as uh, you know the, the professionals are. So after about three or four weeks, I just talked to Dan and I said, dude, we got to find people who can do this. And so and with the people, the gamblers that, that had come in, they knew people. And so I actually uh, hired, I had professional dealers come in, people who had been in Vegas and done it for a while and they came back to Cleveland. So, And I was able to find uh, through my contacts at the bars, other people who knew how to deal craps and deal blackjack and all of that. And so I hired those people to come in and work. And that alleviated the agents uh, having to do that because that yeah. was a lot of stress. And especially for, you know, like me, I'm trying to figure out because you're talking about, odds yeah, really, and insurance and all the things that they do. And I'm trying to figure all that out. So, along with all the other stuff I had to do, that was really just too much. And so, we were able, we were very fortunate that I got some very good dealers to, to come in every Friday, every Friday night, work the casino. So, that's what, that's what did how you it pay one out.
1: of those dealers for a typical Friday night shift?
2: I think we paid them about 200 to 250 a night, and then they got tips as well. The gamblers would often tip them as well. So did you did, have drinks
1: available too, like a little bar? No, no, didn't we do didn't, that at all. No, okay,
2: no, we had soft drinks and coffee. We would not uh, not allowed, and it was with all the money and the, and the police. We were not going to serve. We weren't going to be have that so life. of uh, somebody, yeah, when torn. you were
1: open, then what did these cops do? You had this one kind of a main guy. Bud that you started off with and lined you up with some others, what did he get some of his, uh, did they like all kind of work in the same unit or know each other, and then he would send guys down just to like work the door and hang out, make sure nobody robbed you? Yeah, that Was the, that their participation?
2: Yes. Bud had uh, probably about 12 officers that he knew. He had been police officer for 20 years. He was working at the jail at the time. But he and the reason, again, these guys used to run casinos of their own or black, you know, run poker games uh, on their own. So they knew what they were doing and Bud knew whom he could trust. And uh, so he would bring in police officers, some that worked for him at the jail, but also others that he worked with throughout his career from different precincts would do it. And, you know, it was some, you know, basically I let Bud pick them. And then I would, he'd bring them in, I'd interview them, make sure that they were okay. But I had to get them to in conversation to make sure that we had them on tape, knowing that they, they were willing to do this and what they weren't bringing for, You know, you have to get conversations out there so that you can't say that there was entrapment and all, all the other issues that come with this. So it was like bringing them in, me basically, you know, filling them out, getting them on. And then throughout the night, either me or one of the other uh, undercover agents would, would engage in conversation. But we would have at the shop on the east side, which was kind of the small shop that was next to my t-shirt shop, we had uh, four officers inside and two outside that, that would, uh, you know, stay because we were in the neighborhood. And so we had to make sure that nobody was being attracted to, uh, to the place and making sure that everything outside was okay. And then when we moved to the warehouse, we added probably three or four more additional police officers to work the garage area, the you know, letting people in and out. And then up front, we, we had them at each table to make sure nobody was stealing and, and that kind of, you know, that kind of stuff. But it was, you know, the, the other thing, you, you run into all kinds of issues with what, when you're doing these kinds of things. And one of, you know, when I first started this with Bud, Bud just laid it out that I had to pay him and then he would pay the officers. I wasn't to pay the officers. I wasn't to count the money. I mean, this was all the stuff that he had laid out. And I played it for the Assistant United States Attorneys and Dan and the people uh, who were doing the administrative stuff on the case. And after a couple of weeks, the AUSA, the Assistant United States Attorney, Bob uh, Bulford, said, Ray, we got to have you count the money. And you got to pay each officer separately. I go, we've already been through this. They're not going to let me do that. He said, you're going to have to do it. So when I would pay Bud, I'd have all the money already counted out, and I just hand it to him, and he would take it. And when he paid the officer, I said I wanted to be there when he paid the officer, just to make sure that he's not keeping the money. So we did have that worked out. So what what I decided to do was instead of having all the money counted, I had I put money in all different pockets. I put it in my desk drawer, and so when uh, Bud came in, I just started pulling money out. No wrong, this is all on camera. And I pull some money. I said, count that. Tell me how much. What do you got there? And he you know, you got. Seventy-five. Okay, and I pull out some more money. What do you got until we got to the amount that I owed Bud, and I say, okay, send in uh, whoever the next guy is, and and we go through the same thing. I just keep pulling money out from different places, and Bud would count it, and then you know he'd say that's a hundred. I go, okay, that's a hundred, and then I give you know. Uh, so that's how I got around not counting the money. I had <laughs> Bud <laughs> basically had Bud count the money uh, for me, so. Those
1: were, like, say, How much time. did you pay each one of these guys for a, an evening shift? Kind of like working an off-duty uh, job. You know, you go in at the end and they pay you like 50 bucks for your three hours or whatever.
2: Yeah, these guys, and then, like I say, we'd start at 9 o'clock in the morning and run till uh, 8 or 9 o'clock Saturday morning. So these guys were there wow. for about 12 hours. Bud got $500 and everyone else, of uh, the other officers got about 250
1: Interesting. So you, know, you ran this for a while and then you... How did you like move into another group of officers? Was there somebody out of this group that you know, you felt like you could talk to, and, and then he introduced you into some more?
2: Well, Dan Estrom, as I said early on in his career, was very good at getting cooperating witnesses and confidential informants. And so when we broke away from Bud's group, Dan introduced me, had me introduced to a gentleman by the name of Reggie, who was a bail bondsman. And uh, Reggie was a former police officer. And so I, I got introduced to Reggie, and Reggie and I hit it off pretty well. Reggie wanted to make some money, and when he found out what I was doing, he immediately had contacts. And so through Reggie, I was able to start meeting these other police officers and got them, you know, uh, basically would laid out to them what we were doing. And, you know, they would agree to do it, and then, like I say, they agreed to the uh, Casino, Protecting the Casino. And then this group also agreed, some of them agreed to protect those drug shipments. And Reggie even had set up a meeting with a judge. And his, I get a call from Reggie, I need to meet him down. His office is right next to the mm-hmm. courthouse. And so he said, meet me down at the, down at the office at, at noon today. So I drive down to his office and waiting outside. He's coming out of the courthouse, and he's waving me over to the courthouse. Now, I'm wired. I got my recorder on. I'm ready to record the conversation, and he says, come on. He says, "Uh, I just talked, had dinner with Judge, and he gave me the name, and he said, they want to meet with you. They're willing to they help you out. So I'm, wow, okay. So I'm all excited, and we're walking up to the courthouse, and, and he keeps talking, and I'm getting more, more and more excited. I'm thinking, man, Dan's going to be Really happy with this. We're going after judges now. And so he takes me up and he opens the door and I realize I gotta go through a magnetometer to get into the courthouse. And I'm, so I said, Reggie, come on, I don't want to go up to ride the office. Let's just set this up for later. Maybe we can have dinner. No, 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 she's waiting for you. Come on, come on. And he keeps dragging me, and I'm thinking, wow, well, this is over <laughs> now. They're gonna, The magnetometer is going to go off. They're going to search me. There's going to be a recorder. This whole thing's over. And just as we get to the magnetometer, he grabs me by my arm and takes me around and tells the police officer, the court officer, <laughs> he's with me. And we go. And, you know, he had such a great reputation because he was always in and out of there as a bail bondsman that they all knew him. And uh, he was. It would take me right around the magnetometer, and we did go up. We went up to the judge's office and had a very good conversation. And about two days later, Reggie gets arrested for, for narcotic, possession of narcotics, and uh, that that part of the investigation with uh, with the judges and some of the other people he was going to introduce me to just went they wouldn't even talk to me. But the police officers, you know, basically we continued and I would get more police officers through the one gentleman that was basically the lead guy that Reggie had introduced me to. And so it was through him that I was able to go ahead and get additional police officers. So there's always something coming up. There's always issues and problems and these things never go smoothly. And uh, you you just got to be, like I say, quick on your feet and hope that you get breaks like the fact that I didn't have to go through yeah. a magnetometer. And, you know, so it's just, it, uh, and then the other ironic thing was one of the main characters in, in the case, the name of the case was Chiron, and it was after Shirley and Ron. And Shirley was a bag man, a bag lady for uh, Ron Chismar, who ran a bookmaking operation. And so I became good friends with Shirley, getting to know Shirley, and she ran a bar. And Shirley, during the middle of the operation, was getting married. Uh, decided to get married, and she asked me to give her away at her (laughs) wedding. And so, you know, I said, well, yeah, okay, I I hope I don't have to get approval from headquarters to do this, but yeah, I'd be more than happy to do it. So you develop uh, these relationships that it's just, I I mean, like I say, to give somebody a Give somebody away at their wedding. And I know that when she was arrested, she did, she was very upset with me and not happy when she did see me at the end because I had, when they brought all the police officers in, when they arrested everybody, I had to positively identify them. And she was not happy when she saw me. And I'm just thinking, you know, wow, you know, unfortunately I'm on her <laughs> way. The video for a wedding walking around. Really? Yeah.
1: So, Ray, Ray uh, Cleveland's a mob town. Did you ever, you know, did they ever come to your attention or do you come to their attention where they wanted to? To shake you down, take a little piece of your action? Or was that, was you operated under the radar of all that?
2: You know what? We were kind of under the radar, but I did hear from Dan Eshram through our, another agent on the uh, organized crime squad that they had told Dan that the mob uh, knew that there was a game in town, a new game, a new casino, a illegal casino in town, and they figured it had to be. Oh, really? F- so the mob, <laughs> the mob figured <laughs> it out, but, uh, but but the police didn't. So they, they, like I say, I never had any any run-ins or anything like that. But that was that was one of the uh, one of the things that the information that got back to them was that the mob kind of I heard about it and kind of stayed basically stayed away because they, they thought they had to be the FBI doing that.
1: So these cops, you operate this whole time. Did you have any liaison with the Cleveland PD at all, or was there internal affairs, or did they you take stay totally off their radar?
2: No, we made it. It wasn't my decision case agent and the front office made a conscious decision not to include the Cleveland Police Department because at that point, they didn't trust it. They felt that if they had brought them in, word would get back and the case would be done. But what, what our SAC did, did do just a few days before we were doing the arrest, he brought Chief Kovacic in at the time and told him what was going on. And basically, when they did the, uh, the, press, uh, the press interviews and releases, the SAC, Bill Brannan, stated that we had worked with hand-in-hand hand with the Cleveland Police Department. And it was basically a safe face for them. But, you know, they, they were kind of, from what I understand, they were upset with the fact that we didn't tell them. But there was just no one in the FBI, in the in the hierarchy, felt that that would be the right thing to do or the safe thing to do because they just didn't trust me. No, I,
1: I agree. I agree from what you've told me. That many guys involved. It, and plus, like, you, are, you got ratted out to internal affairs. At, at least they had they had some redeeming qualities that internal affairs was working that thing and knew cops. There were dirty cops, and then they got ratted out. So it would, right. that's what would have happened if you'd have told them. They would have, no cop would ever yeah. talk to you.
2: And, and ironically, uh, when we did bring them in to help with the arrests and all of that. And so at the end, when the, when they're bringing the, all of the uh, uh, subjects in for positive identification, one of the IA officers came up to me introduced himself. He said, I'm with internal affairs. And I saw him nice to meet you. He said, I wanted to kick your ass. And I just look at him and I go, why? He goes, I was in the dumpster that night waiting for you to show up. <laughs> so he he, he he told me at that point, he said, we were all around the place. And he said, I was in the dumpster right outside the garage door. And I go, oh, okay. And he said, when well, you didn't show up, I was, yeah. I was pissed.
1: So they were, and they knew there was dirty cops. and That's why it was internal affairs, and they, and they were after the cops as well as you. Right. Okay. Well, good. Yep. It's glad. I'm glad yep. to know that it wasn't totally, absolutely, totally 100 percent corrupt. I, I hate hearing these kinds of stories. But yep. as we talked on the phone before, it it seems to me like up to Kansas City, and we had our some small problems, but nothing at, on this scale. But we just didn't have that institutional corruption that seemed like you have east of here, like uh, Chicago and Cleveland and New York City, and right. We just didn't
2: have it at all. Yep, I tell you, that's very fortunate that you have police departments like that. Basically, there's no corruption. People do they get hired to do to protect the, the citizens and and uh, and the laws, and that's what they do. Uh, it seemed like this group that we were working with that was the last thing on their mind. They used a badge for all of their personal
1: yeah that's too bad but it happens you know i always say you can't have a big city without having a little corruption but uh, that was a little too much corruption (laughs) (laughs) makes it more colorful place in, in a way but yes
2: it does yes it does ray this has
1: been great this is a hell of a story man i'm telling you and that was i mean what you you lived how what was the total length of time you were really undercover and did you did you have, like Joe Pistone, did you have your own apartment? Did you live the life 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and then go see your wife and family, you know, some periodically? Yeah,
2: yeah, yes. I was undercover for, wow. for two years from 89 to 91. And then basically, we were able to uh, go right to trial in 92 because we were prepared, ready to go. So. From '89 to '91, I was undercover. '91 to '92, I was preparing for trials. Now, as far as I did have an undercover apartment, which I stayed at, uh, because I again, I would get to my my shop about 8:30 in the morning and run that till about five, close that, go home, go to my apartment, get showered, change, get something to eat, and I go hit the bars until 1:30, o'clock at night. Then I come back to the apartment, and all the recordings I made, I had to mark and then write up a 3:02 on what was on, who was on the tape, what was on the tape, and that, and then put that all away. So by the time I get to bed, it'd be like three, get up at seven and go back and do the whole thing all over again. I didn't get home very often. And at one point I got a call by my wife, text by my wife, I needed to come home and she had the kids packed and she left me. And, you know, at that point it was like, she just had enough. When I did go home, it was, and it's hard to explain, but physically I was there, but mentally, I was, you know, worried about the case, thinking about the case. I didn't want to hear the problems that she was having with the, because we had two young sons at the time. And I just very selfish of me. And this was this is what happens when you get wrapped up in an investigation like this is that takes all of For me, it took all of my attention. Every thought was about this case and for the life of me didn't care what was going on at home because I figured I had more important things to do. And so after about eight, nine months of that, my wife took the kids and left. And did. and I was okay. Well, at least I thought it was. And one of the things the FBI does, which I think is fantastic, is all undercover agents before you go into a project has to have a, a psychological exam. And then you're interviewed after you take these tests and you're interviewed by uh, one, one of our behavioral scientists, psychologists that Basically, make sure that you're okay, and and so every six months you got to take these tests and go back for these interviews. And so this happened, and it, I think two months went by. My wife is gone. Nobody knew. I didn't tell. I didn't tell the case agent. I didn't tell anybody that that they had left, and my wife was and kids had gone. I had to go back to Quantico to take this test, and so this was this would have been about the third or fourth time I've taken the test and and then meet with the uh, psychologist. And so I figured I knew this test. I mean, i have taken it many times it went right through it and after you take the test it's about a four four to five hour test that you take and then they score it and then they call you down and you go through it with them well i took the test and got called down and i walked into uh the uh, psychiatrist's office and he says uh what's the matter and i go nothing why he goes uh tell me what the problem is i go steve i have no problem i'm, I'm good he goes you're tighter than a drum he said this test really has me concerned and I'm thinking, I answered it the way I always answer it. He kept asking me and he said, look, I'm going to take you off the project if you don't tell me what's going on. At that point, I said, look, I said, my wife left and uh, she's in Pittsburgh and went on and he just looked at me and said, did you drive here? I said, yeah. He said, why don't you get in the car and drive to Pittsburgh and, and get with your wife and family and get that squared away. He said, I'm going to call Cleveland. I'll tell them I need, I wanted you to just take a couple of weeks off and you needed some time off, but you take care of that. And once you've taken care of that, you get back to me. So I went to Pittsburgh and I did that. I cried. You know, I did, did a lot of crying and apologizing and finally listened to what, what my wife had to say. And we worked it out. You know, we we had been married up, I think, 10 years at that point And she knew me very well and, and understood. And so th- th- what we decided was she was going to stay in Pittsburgh with the kids and just let me finish the project. And I would go to Pittsburgh periodically after that. But it affects you. It changes you. And I, like I said, I thought I was fine. It wasn't until... I took that damn test that I realized that, you know, know, something's wrong and I got to get this squared away. And thank God for the FBI behavioral science and and the psychiatrists who, like I say, they really take care of their undercover agents. Had he not, probably just allowed my wife and the family to leave and I would have moved on. But we've been married now 41 years and everybody's good. That was, uh, like I say, it, it takes a toll on you mentally and physically. It's one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life. And it's something that I'm very proud of having done it, but I really... I understand what I did to my family as well. That,
1: you did a hell of a job. I'll tell you what, that was a huge sacrifice you made and cleaned up a whole police department like that. Cause I would imagine, I know enough about this that you are, take down that many guys on one police department, that police department has to fundamentally change. They have to have some yeah. kind of a change from one end to the other, probably starting with a new chief pretty quick. And, Looking at their hiring practices and start really weeding out the the bad eggs did, did you see any kind of a change with the Cleveland p d after that?
2: Yeah, I had left they had moved me I got transferred to uh, to Atlanta for my protection. The whole thing was i was I wanted to just go to the Youngstown field office and work there, but because uh, there were some threats made by some of the officers on my me and my family that they covertly moved us mm-hmm. to Atlanta. So, what I did hear from the agents and the supervisor, who I still, who I'm still in touch with and I still good friends with, there was a lot of fundamental changes. The mayor got involved. It was a, a lot of changes that were implemented into that. And, and again, I think internal affairs did a lot as well, knowing that they had this problem.
1: Interesting, well, Ray. This has been great. I really appreciate you coming on, telling this story. Uh, you left the FBI. What have you been doing ever since? Besides writing books and.
2: <laughs> well, actually, you know, it took me thirty years to write, <laughs> to write the book, and it wasn't—it wasn't until I did the uh, podcast that you mentioned with Jerry Williams. I had never had any intentions of writing a book. I figured throughout my career, you know, I negatively affected 47 families' lives. I didn't see any reason to, to write a book. And so I never wrote anything about it. But when I uh, did Jerry Williams' podcast, after I'd done it, I got a call from a couple of the uh, undercover agents who I've known, for, uh, known or heard of. Jack Garcia, mm-hmm. one of them. Jack's been on 60 Minutes. As soon as I finished my undercover operation, I met Joe Pistone, which was a, a huge thrill. But then Joe and I have been friends and I've done things with Joe. And they convinced me to write the book. And they said, you need regular your story so i guess it was about two years ago i started doing it and finally
1: finished it last cool. year yeah we've had talked to joe a couple times he's been on the podcast here and on a couple different shows one just a little uh cameo appearance for a one thing and then he and his uh, podcasting partner came on and we did kind of a show kind of promoting their new podcast and, and Jack Garcia was just on here not too long ago. So you're fine company there. I, I really applaud your work.
2: Yeah, those guys are, really yeah, they amazing. are,
1: they are. I, I, you know, I, I work, you know, what we'd call semi undercover, you know, I, we didn't, we wore t-shirts and blue jeans and sports jackets and things like that and just followed guys around and never really like came off as police officers. But as far as that actually working. Day to day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, or even going in and fronting myself off as a criminal, another criminal. I never did that. And I, I don't think I could have done it. It was, it's a, it takes a special talent to do that because those people, they've got this native intelligence that they spot things that, that you don't even think about. I had a kid one time tell me, he said, I know uh, you, you cops, and you think you're being undercover. He said, you touch your gun all the time. It's like, oh shit. <laughs> I just realized I do that. <laughs> so there's lots of little tells, yep. and and you had to master all of those. So that's, uh, you did a hell of a job, man. What, what have you done since? Are you, besides writing a book, are you working, uh, you know, like investigations for anybody or are you just totally retired? No,
2: no, I retired and I, Worked for a couple of years with a uh, casino and then with uh, Siemens uh, Corporation. And for the past seven years, I've been with the Pennsylvania Turnpike Commission. As their chief compliance officer, I head up their investigative unit. And thats I don't know what I would do if I retired. I got no skills <laughs> or abilities, so no yeah. hobbies. I, I don't know what else I would do. So,
1: <laughs> All right, Ray. So, folks, the book is Broken Shield by Ray Morrow. Find it on Amazon. You've got a website, I believe.
2: Yeah, it, it's uh, brokenshieldraym.com.
1: Okay, and do you have Facebook or? And there's a lot of information. You have on Facebook there. or Twitter and any uh, of that? Yeah, I do. Yes, don't have
2: Twitter, but I do have Facebook. Okay, so it's just uh, that's broken. Okay, so I
1: figured just go out, sir, folks, just go out and search in your Facebook mechanism for Broken Shield, and you can keep up with Ray, and people like to keep up with what's going on. It's a really interesting book. Now, have you, uh, have you sold the uh, uh, screen rights to anybody yet? I figured yes, you
2: did. Yes, uh, Actually, uh, right after the podcast I did with uh, Jerry Williams, I got a call from a Hollywood person by the name of Justin Shankaro. Justin purchased the rights to the, uh, okay. to the story, and we've been working on a film, writing for the film. It Things have kind of slowed down because of the pandemic, but I'm hoping 2021 we're able to uh, get things uh, kicked back to where, where it needs to be so we can get this thing uh, done.
1: All right, Ray. Folks, look for the movie and go get the book. So, Ray, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast.
2: Gary, thank you for having me. It has been a pleasure. Right, thank you so
1: right, much. Bye, bye. Well, folks, thank you for listening and all your nice comments on the Apple Podcast reviews. Plus, your nice comments on my YouTube channel, where I often put up the uh, at least the Zoom interviews, so you can see what my guests look like in real life. Also, on our Facebook group, Gangland Wire Podcast, I see a lot of really good compliments on that. I've got some great people that help put up really good content. So, if you want more. Mob information that you can shake a stick at, go to Gangland Wire podcast Facebook page, or actually it's a group. Remember that if you support the podcast with some donations, you'll get an invite to my live Zoom call, where we'll share stories, answer questions, and in general, have a good time. Don't forget to buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on Venmo, on your Venmo app, or you can go to Gangland Wire, my website, ganglandwire.com, and donate. I have a donate page, and, and each... Podcast that I put up has a pretty lengthy written blog piece about what the subject is, and at the bottom of that page, there's a way to donate. I have some fixed costs, and plus, I'm raising some money for my next documentary, which is about the KC mob and the election fraud of 1946. I've already had to hire a film guy to do a couple of my interviews, and I have one more interview to film. Plus, I have an artist that I pay to do some illustrations for my movie. If you remember from Brothers Against Brothers or Gangland Wire, I use some illustrations in those. And by the way, you can rent those on Amazon for only $1.99 or $2.99 if you want the HD version. And finally, I have my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. But in that book, you're going to find copies of a lot of the transcripts of the actual wiretaps. And if you get the Kindle version, I took those audios that I got out of the court files and linked them to the book in the proper places. I have an explanation and then the actual audio wiretap, which I think is kind of unusual. So you can go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration and their programs that help veterans with PTSD. You can call their hotline at 1-800-873-8255 and push 1. Or go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. I hate saying that www. I left it out when I said something about Gangland Wire. You guys all know I can leave that out. Anyhow, thanks a lot for listening and listen up next week. I try to put out one a week music provided by our good friend and super fan from portland oregon casey mcbride thanks casey